with that said, let me tell you about an email that I, I received this, this last week. I was kind of surprised by. Um, it was an email sent by a person that I don't know, but, but he um, represents a team called the Pastor's Rapid Response Team. Send me an email, Pastor's Rapid Response Team. And uh, I don't know how this group got me on their distribution list. My guess is that one of you went out to their website and said, Pastor Dan needs to be subscribed to this newsletter. Don't, I know that happens because I'm still getting hair product stuff from some clown out there <laughs> who uh, typed in my name. But anyway, so I, I got this um, email from the Pastor's Rapid Response team, and it's um, in response to the, um, what's going to take place on March 26th. That is, the, the arguments begin in, um, in the Supreme Court as to the whole issue of marriage and the definition of marriage, and in particular, California's Proposition 8. And uh, so this email basically was a call for pastors to encourage their congregations, if they had the means, to get on a plane, fly out to Washington, and be a part of this march, um, to March for Marriage. That's what it's called, March for Marriage, um, past the Capitol building. And then in addition to that, to um, preach a message on, on marriage on June 9th. Now, um, so the whole idea is they, they want to kind of um, represent or bolster this, this looming conflict or fight over the whole definition of marriage. And um, they're summoning the Christian troops to join in. Of course, we know our president has already weighed in and he's pushing one, the other side. And so I, I don't know if you feel this, but they're like there's this looming conflict on the horizon. It's kind of always been here, at least for the last 20, 30 years, but now it's like coming to a head. And um, I want to this morning discuss not issue of marriage or um, that particular social issue, but um, I would like to discuss specifically from the scripture and look at how the Christian is supposed to navigate the waters of conflict. Um, a very, very important question for our time, a, a very important for me personally to come to grips with and analyze for myself, what does the Lord want me to do as a pastor, as a Christian, as a citizen, um, and most importantly, a follower of Jesus? How, how does the Lord want me to navigate these conflicts? And my sense from talking to my friends and, and, and many of you is that you sense that there are these, uh, this is kind of vortex of swirling, contradicting ideologies, truth claims, um, understandings of morality, um, immorality, and, and they're, they're like coming to a head. I, I, I very much feel um, this conflict, and I, I think it's been building for decades, but you kind of feel like there's going to be an explosion here at some point. At some point, it's going to crack. And um, for us who uh, pro- profess to follow Jesus and, and want to live by his word and want to make a difference in the world, we have to ask ourselves a really important question. How does Jesus want me to walk in the middle of this conflict? And not just the big cultural, social conflicts, but, but also just the personal conflicts that we have. You know, in our marriages, in our families. I know my, my extended family is kind of in a time of conflict. I have some siblings who don't want to talk to each other. And, and that's always hard because you feel like they're asking you to take a side, um, which will um, hurt, of course, the other person. How do, how do, we, how do we navigate that? Uh, how do we walk faithfully in the midst of those conflicts? Now, two approaches typically that people... Um, take with regards to how to manage conflict is one is you stick your head in the sand and avoid it altogether, which I think is, uh, is foolish, not to mention unloving, because um, the issues are real and they really do hurt people or um, hurt children and so forth. On the other hand, there's a different approach and that is you throw your hat wholeheartedly into one side um, and oftentimes become a part of an escalation of hostility, which leaves us in kind of this loveless fight 
where we end up compromising our mission as Christians to um, proclaim and demonstrate the love of Christ for the world. So there's this, um, there's this, this the issues of conflict that, that, that we face every day and in our, our society, and the single question is, how does Jesus want us to walk in the middle of that in a way that is faithful? I think it's an important question, and I hope um, this morning will help us think through it a little bit differently, uh, or maybe just with greater illumination, because I think David's example in chapter 2, 3, and 4 of, of 2 Samuel, those Three chapters make up one story. Um, give us uh, a, a way of, a visible way of navigating um, times of conflict. Up until now, we've largely watched David under the pressure of uh, persecution. But in this chapter, chapter 2 and 3 and 4, he is thrown into the fray of a civil war and conflict. And uh, you have to watch really closely how he, as a man after God's own heart, lives and responds in the middle of conflict. Now, the story is three chapters long, which means I'm going to summarize most of it and read other portions of it. And then at the end, I want to conclude with some reflections, which is kind of the application portion. Now, um, this reads kind of like a, I said in the first service, kind of like a bad soap opera, or maybe a good soap opera. I don't know if there's ever, never a good soap opera, actually. But um, there's, there's a lot of intrigue, and there's a lot of back and forth, and people are trying to kill each other, kind of like on The Godfather, knock each other off. And so just do your best to kind of hang with the, the story as I summarize and read certain portions of it. And, um, and then at the end, we'll just kind of say, hey, so what, what answers does David's life provide for us? Well, we left off, and the first king of Israel is dead, and the army has been beaten by the Philistines. The way has been cleared for David to finally become king after we don't know how many years exactly. But David begins kind of in this place of what now? By praying or by inquiring of the Lord. We read in chapter 2, verse 1, this. It says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, uh, Shall I go up into the, to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And, the Lord, and, and he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the, of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Finally, after all of this time, David has been promised for years that he would one day be king. And here comes kind of the crowning moment when the men of Judah crown David king. But he's only crowned king of one of the tribes of Israel. There's 12 total, all named after um, the sons of Jacob back in, in Genesis. And um, so he's not king of Israel at this point. He's just king of Judah in a town of Hebron. Now, um, for those of you who are visual, um, the, here's a map. If you're not visual, don't look at the map, all right? So it just kind of helps. Um, Hebron, I have a little um, gold crown next to Hebron just so you kind of get a visual of this. This is where David is proclaimed king of, of Judah. Meanwhile, the story goes on. There is this very powerful man by the name of Abner. I'll tell you more about him in a second. Um, who is uh, one of the generals of, of, of King Saul, who now has passed away. And he takes and he crowns the last remaining son of Saul, king, up in the north in Mahanaim. Um, so you have basically two kings. King David of one tribe and King Ishbosheth. Um, the name, sadly enough, means son of shame in Hebrew. Um, but this general crowns 
this kind of puppet king up in the north over the other 11 tribes. Well, you can kind of sense at this point that there's this massive conflict that is on the horizon because Israel has now been divided into two. David in the south, Ishbosheth, with this, this powerful man by the name of Abner in the north. Well, the story goes on. Again, follow me. This is the soap opera part. Abner, a powerful man, decides he's going to take the initiative and bring his army to the south against David, presumably to reunite the nation. So he brings his armies to the south. He, in effect, draws first blood. Now, let me just pause for a second and tell you about this guy, Abner, because most of you probably don't know that much about him. He's, he's actually the, the, the uncle of, of King Saul. And, um, and we've, we met him way back in 1 Samuel chapter 14, and, um, which means that he has been the commanding general of the armies of Israel for over four decades. That means he is a battle-hardened, veteran, experienced, crusty, seasoned general. Um, if he were in today's military and he was to come to a, a, a military celebration and in his dress blues, he would have medals hanging down to his knees. That's, that's, so he's part of Saul's family and he is a seasoned, over four decade uh, general of the armies, which explains why he's able to crown a king and able to lead the army south towards David. So there's a threat towards David in the south. David does not draw first blood, but Abner does. Enter Joab, um, a very colorful individual, a guy you love and hate at the same time in the book of 2 Samuel. He happens to be the nephew of David. Now, they're all related, not too different than people in Canada. Um, I just have to every once in a while when I can throw a dagger under my Canadian brothers and sisters, even though it's not true, always. (laughs) Anyway, enter Joab. He happens to be the nephew of David. Um, He is David's uh, main leading officer. He takes his armies to the north. And they meet around a place called the Pool of Gibeon. And there they decide, instead of having the whole armies fight it out, they will pick 12 from each side, and they will do this contest to the death. So 12 men from Joab's side, 12 men from Abner's side, and they... They, um, they begin fighting, and it says they grabbed each other's heads, ran each other through with the sword, and they basically all died. At least that's the sense of the text. Well, uh, the idea of saving the rest of the lives of the army didn't work out so well because after those 12 died, um, a battle ensues. And Abner loses, and he begins heading back north. He's running north with Judah, the men of Judah, hot on his tail. And here we pick up the text again in verse 18, chapter 2. And the three sons of Zeru- uh, Zeru- Zeruah... That's his, Zeruah is actually David's sister. Um, so the three sons are his nephews were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asael. Now Asael was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asael pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asael? Close-knit community. He obviously knows who he is. And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asael would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asael, turn aside from, from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift my face to your brother Joab? The kind of implication is they were friends or perhaps fought alongside each other at a former time. But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. 
He fell there and died where he was, and all who came to the place where Asael had fallen and died stood still. So here you have this, this aging, um, battle-hardened Abner general running, and naturally, probably in his 60s, doesn't run as fast as the rest. And you have this nephew of David, Asael, who has uh, feet like a gazelle who's just taken off after this general. And the general tells him twice. He says, give it up. Second time, give it up. And Asael wouldn't give it up. And so the seasoned veteran, you know, skewered him with the butt end of his sword, or with his, with his spear. And, and Asael, the nephew of David, the brother of Joab, dies. It would be an event that Joab would neither forget nor forgive. That is, he would harbor a grudge. That's kind of the end of scene one. After that, both armies retreat back to the, or return back to their places of, of respective origin. But up in the north, um, there's a falling out between this powerful general or commanding officer, Abner, and the puppet king, Ishbosheth, over a woman. Um, surprise, surprise. Most of the Israelite kings had problems with um, idolatry and women. No offense to you women. It's just um, they mislead the kings of Israel oftentimes. Well, anyway, these two get in, a, get in a fight over a woman. And Abner decides, you know what? I am going to take the reins of the kingdom of the north, and I'm going to take them down to David and hand over everything to him. So in effect, Abner's intent is to reunite the kingdom underneath David. And he has the power and the strength and the clout, political clout, to do so. So he makes contact with David. And here we pick up in chapter 3, verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, in verse 12, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, um, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Um, then Abner said to him, go, return. And he returned. By the way, Michal um, was uh, the wife earlier in his life that he actually paid a dowry for. She was, she was legitimately his. And um, here he wants her back. And I think it's not for romantic reasons, but rather for political reasons, to take the daughter of the former king. Anyway, she comes. Verse 17, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as, as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel um, and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. That is, they were all in favor of this. Um, then when Abner came and, and 20 men to David at Hebron, uh, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were there with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king um, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that, is, that, that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away um, and he went in peace. Now at this part of the story, it sounds like everything is kind of going well. Um, here's this powerful individual that at first attacked David. Now he's wanting to hand over all the reins to David. 
Um, but I want you to notice something that, that, that David here extends grace or mercy, um, hospitality to someone who attacked him, um, to an enemy of sorts. That's one thing I want you to kind of plant in your brain, that David um, welcomes Abner um, with grace um, in order to ultimately promote peace in the kingdom. Grace. Well, it sounds good. Everything is going well until Joab comes back on the scene. Remember I told you that he, um, he would not forget nor forgive um, Abner for taking the life of his brother. Joab comes on the scene. Apparently he wasn't there. And he hears about the fact that Abner was, was let go in peace and he blows his stack with David. And afterwards, he concocts this kind of plan of vengeance. And this is where we read about um, Joab's, um, I don't want to call it threat. He basically undermines this whole process of possibly getting David the entire kingdom. We read in verse 26, When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. And they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know it or know about it. So David has no clue that, that Joab called him back. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the, uh, of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asael, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asael to death in the battle at Gibeon. With one single act of of personal vengeance, Joab takes the the life of this um, prominent political military leader from the north, um, completely undermining everything that that was going on, the whole bringing the, the kingdoms back under the reign of of, of, of David, all for the sake of his personal vendetta against Abner for taking Asael's life. But I want you to notice how David responds, keeping in mind that Joab is his nephew. David stands on the side of justice against his nephew, his own family, and condemns the action as unjust, and then laments the life or the death of Abner. As he takes his stand against his own family in the cause of justice. Now, why at this point David doesn't execute Joab is a matter of some debate. The text does not tell us. But it does tell us that he uses the strongest language possible, curse language, to condemn his action. So, David received Abner with grace, and he also dealt with Joab with justice. And then to finish the story, without this impressive guy by the name of Abner, who was really the powerhouse in the north, um, Isbosheth, the, the puppet king, really um, didn't have the will or the courage or the ability to lead the nation. So another yet dangerous or um, fatal plot unfolds in his life. Chapter 4, verse 1 When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. That's the effect of one man's act of vengeance. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. Um, again, army guys. Uh, the name of the one was Bana'ah, 
and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. And then I want you to switch over to, to verse 5, because this is what these two men who originally probably were under the command of Abner, they too are going to try to bring the kingdom under David, but in a very evil way. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, Rechab, and Bana, uh, set out about the heat of day, and when they came to the house of Ishbosheth, he was taking his noonday siesta. Uh, verse 6 And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. And verse 7 actually kind of goes back and gives greater detail, um, like we really needed it, um, to what happened. It says, When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his ba- bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night. And brought the head of Ishbosheth, that's the puppet king, uh, to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day um, on Saul and his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banah, Baanah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Beerthite. Love all these names. As the Lord lives, David said, who has re- redeemed my life out of every adversity. Uh, When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand to destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Here's... Two guys with some military um, clout, and they decide that they're going to go ahead and execute the king, bring the head to David, and uh, it will all be done. Only they seriously miscalculated David's character, as you well know. That David, all the way through his life, not once has he um, forced or taken by his own hand or even reached for the crown. Nor would he tolerate anybody bringing the crown to him through such an evil means as first-degree murder, killing a man in cold blood while he takes a nap. And so David does what, what he should do as king, and that is he executes justice, and these two men are put to death. Now let me just back up here for a second so you can see the ping-pong game that just happened. Two kings crowned. Abner attacks David. Asael attacks Abner. Abner kills Asael. Joab kills Abner because of the death of Asael. Then the two com- commanders of, of, of Saul's raiding parties kill Ishbosheth, and they bring the head to David, and David kind of brings the thing to a close by executing justice. Okay, in, in all of that mayhem and conflict... Um, how is it that David navigates this civil war, this, um, this conflict between Joab and Abner and vengeance and, and so forth? How does David conduct and navigate his walk through this conflict? And I would want to say in three ways. Grace justice, 
and patience. Grace, justice, and patience. On the one hand, he he was gracious to Abner, his enemy. On the other hand, he took a stand um, of justice against his own family. And then the whole flow of David's story um, is that he patiently waited and knew in faith that God himself would crown David. Um, He didn't need any help. So his, his whole story shows so much patience amidst all of this conflict in his life. Grace and justice and and patience. Now let's fast forward to the 21st century. The, the real issues that confront us as believers, followers of Christ, as a church and as individuals, um, big issues like the whole issue of marriage. Or the other massive issue of, 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 the, of the millions of unborn that have been extinguished and swept under the carpet. Um, or for those of you who are part of the NRA, the the looming conflict over gun control, or the conflicts that you feel in your own families because of divorce, a drug addiction, or, or alcoholism. How is it that we as Christians are to conduct ourselves? And I believe these three things are kind of like the tripod or the holy triad of of how to walk faithfully is on the one hand to make sure that we're gracious that we extend grace to those who disagree with us who might not hold our position or may not even believe that the bible is 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 a book above any other books at the same time to be about the cause of of justice to promote justice as god allows us to but to do so patiently knowing that ultimately God's the one that has to make it happen. You know, the labor is labor in vain if God doesn't build the house. Grace, justice, and patience. And you lop off any one of those three and we're in big trouble. You, 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 you um, promote the cause of justice without grace and it turns into a loveless fight and we compromise our mission. Not to mention the fact that justice without love isn't justice. On the other hand, if we're all about love in our culture... With no justice, then we end up with this kind of sentimental, mushy, spineless approval and acceptance of everything. On the other hand, if we lack patience, then we will inevitably force a conclusion and hurt people in the process, including ourselves. But to recognize that part of what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is that We are to navigate these difficult waters by maintaining grace at the same time promoting justice. And Jesus did the same thing. The Garden of of Gethsemane, when when the the guards, his enemy came to, to arrest him, to take him to be eventually crucified. Peter, who is a little bit like Joab in my opinion, uh, pulls out his sword and in an, an impulsive moment decides he's going to defend Jesus, takes a sword, and he intended on killing the guy But he's a horrible shot or swing, so he takes off his ear. What does Jesus do in this conflict? Or he reaches up in in an amazing display of grace and he heals the ear of his enemy and rebukes the injustice of his friend. Grace and justice. With patience. 
Now notice what I didn't tell you to do. You need to buy an airplane ticket. March 26th. And be there in Washington. You're not going to hear me say that, and that makes some people mad, but I would rather tell you this. Whatever you choose to do, not just in that conflict, but any conflict, make sure that it radiates grace, promotes justice, and is done with great patience. You know how long it took um, William Wilberforce to bring slavery to an end in Britain without a civil war? Depending on how you calculate, between 20 and 40 years in British Parliament. During that time, almost four decades, he was gracious, he was steadfast in his promotion of justice for the slaves, but he did so with great patience. And they didn't end up losing half a million lives in the process. Just again, how do we manage or how do we navigate justice or grace, justice with great patience? And you know where that comes from? If I just leave you here, you're going to go, okay, I've got to do those three things. Dan, I've got to be whew, gracious and promote justice with great patience. Okay. Now I know what to do, but how do I get there? And I think there's something underneath in David's heart and life that enabled that to happen. And it's summed up in a single phrase. I think the most important statement, confession of faith he makes um, in chapter 4, and I just read it. He says this to the two murderers before him. He says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. David looked back and he saw a whole series of God continuing to graciously preserve and, and rescue and deliver all the way through his life. That God's grace, his redeeming grace is comprehensive. I was thinking about this, comprehensive. It includes not only the big things, but the small things. Comprehensive as opposed to partial. It's like insurance, you know. On my 1992 Bronco outside, you know, it has liability because it's not worth to cover that much, you know, comprehensive insurance. So if I hit a tree, I lose the truck, but maybe go to the hospital and everything's paid for, right? I mean, that's partial. You know, in your new car, it's comprehensive, includes everything minus your deductible, correct? Well, some of us, I think, believe subtly, we wouldn't articulate it this way, but believe that God's redeeming grace is partial, that it's partial to the big things that Jesus won for us at the cross, that it won for us forgiveness, won for us righteousness, and won for us a new creation. We're like, yes, grace covers those things. God's redemption has worked itself out in those big, massive, macro ways, and it, and it has. But David doesn't, adds to that the fact that God is there in the little micro things of life. That the Lord, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed me out of every adversity. To recognize that in all of this mayhem, God is still there in shepherding David's life through the valley of the shadow of death. And, and somehow, David, by faith, comes to understand the Lord is with me. And when you really believe that the Lord is with you and is guiding your paths and and is sustaining you, preserving you, and delivering you, well, then, then you can be gracious, and you can be patient. 
Um, and you can act justly with patience because you know ultimately he's in charge. It reminds us a little bit of Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice. To love mercy or loving kindness or grace is another way of translating it. To, to, to do justice, to love kindness or grace, and to walk humbly with your God. Humbly, meaning I know who's in charge and it's not me. So therefore, I can walk graciously. And I can walk promoting justice because God's heart is for justice with patience knowing that he's on the throne. So if, if you want to know what I think about David's example and what these three chapters show us in terms of how do we navigate in the 21st century these difficult conflicts without sticking our head in the sand on the one hand or on the other hand to throwing ourselves on one side in a way that escalates hostility and ends us in a loveless battle that compromises our mission. It's this. And I think he shows us the way. Grace, justice, patience, trusting in God's comprehensive redemption. I hope the Lord will enable you to use that holy triad of those three things to think through yourself how you personally are going to navigate this conflict-filled world. Lord, I pray for Parkway, and not just Parkway, but 